um, a few years ago, my wife and I, we live on this, it's kind of a tight little street in Philadelphia, and we're across the street, uh, we're in a row of houses across the street from a, a building of condos. And in the middle of the night, um, early morning, 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, we heard this piercing scream. And you hear a lot of screams in the city. And I hear a lot of screams in Harrisburg, too, and sometimes it's kids playing. Um, sometimes it's somebody messing around, but no, nobody on our block thought that. Everybody knew. This is just one of those screams that is blood-curdling. Next day, neighbors all out in the street, what was that? And we found out it was um, an, older, an elderly man who had died um, asleep next to his wife. And she, had, um, she woke up and she found him and she screamed. And I said to my wife, oh, is that all? You know, because I knew, but I didn't know that 150,000 people die in the world a day, estimated. And every time, it's an outrage. Every time. It's a tragedy. And we all know the death rate is 100%. If you're not Enoch or Elijah. Up to the generation when Jesus comes back, every one of us will die. You will die. And I will die too. And this is an episode in the life of Christ that addresses the topic of death. But the great thing about this story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with is that it's an episode that has Jesus walking through the event of death with one particular family. Everybody dies. Everybody's aware of their own death if they are realistic at all. Everyone has a respect for their own mortality unless they're living in a fantasy world. It's the great terror of the human race. And Jesus walks with one family through this death event. And it's very unique compared to all the scenarios we have in the Gospel of Jesus. I'm going to walk you through it now. And there's two perspectives that I want you to keep in mind as we go through this passage together, as we go through it a little more slowly again. The first perspective that we get really clearly is God's perspective. The other perspective is the, the, the Mary and Martha perspective. Here's God's perspective. There are, we're told there are several reasons why Jesus let Lazarus die. And make no mistake, that's what happened. The, the way that this story unfolds, it's not like people are unaware that Jesus, who has been letting the blind see, healing the lame, restoring faulty limbs to people, telling things to them that he knows about them, that he couldn't possibly know unless he was God. People know Jesus is able. At least there's this growing community of people who are daring to believe that he's able to stop death. And we know from other gospel accounts, Lazarus wouldn't have been the first one in Jesus' ministry to be raised from death back to life. But Jesus says very clearly, I'm on purpose not going so that Lazarus will die. 
Mary and Martha ask, Jesus delays, Lazarus dies. It's the very clear flow of the story. And Jesus gives us several, not just one, but several reasons why he did this. I'm going to go straight to them with you. In verse 4, Jesus tells his disciples, I delayed in going, I am delaying in going to Lazarus for the glory of God. I'm not going to save Lazarus for the glory of God. Verse 4. In verse 11, he tells his disciples, he's delaying going to Lazarus because he knows that he will raise Lazarus from the dead. And finally, in verse 15, he says to his disciples, he's delaying so that Lazarus will die, so that Lazarus will be raised from the dead, so that his disciples will believe in him and others will believe. And it sounds great, right? Yeah, he's going to die, but Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's going to let him die. He's going to raise him from the dead and it's going to bring glory to God and all these people are going to believe and it's going to be great. Here's the thing though. All that's from God's perspective. How much of that did Mary and Martha get? None. And that's where you and I live. When people we love die. This is where I think most of us hang out when suffering is at its height. You could have come. You didn't. They died. Um, In Dostoevsky's book, The Brothers Karamazov, I don't know if anybody's read it, it's this classic uh, story of three brothers, three brothers and a father. Uh, There's Dimitri, he's the oldest, and he's a fool. Slave to his passions. Slave to his body. There's Ivan, the middle brother, and he is uh, the rationalist. He's also an atheist. And he's a slave to reason. Slave to his mind. And then the youngest, who's really the hero of the story, Alyosha, is the heart. He's the hero of the story, actually. And he's from um, Dostoevsky, who's an Eastern Orthodox Christian, was. Um, He's in the view of the story, kind of a saint in the making, who has great faith in God and loves well. And there are a few places in this story, um, you could almost say it's the purpose of the book, in conversation between these three brothers, the body, the head, and the heart. In conversation between the brothers, there are these accounts of them in conversation around coffee or around a meal or around a beer, of taking God to court about why suffering happens in the world. It's really poignant. One writer, Ralph Wood, says that Dostoevsky gives voice to the philosophical problem of evil perhaps more clearly and cogently than any other speaker or actor or any other philosopher or theologian in the whole world of literature. And there's this one place where Ivan, the rationalist, the atheist, is painting this picture. Um, it, it was actually in the world of the story, a true story, of a little girl who was locked up um, in an unheated cabin in a Russian winter um, because she wouldn't stop crying. And part of her punishment, it's, it's ugly, was her mouth was filled with excrement. And she wasn't given any food or water. And she, um, she laid down and she just died. And in the world of the story, the story 
caused Ivan to lose his faith. Because God let that happen. God created a world where if he's there at all, and he cares at all, and he's able at all, he surely could have stopped that from happening and didn't. And let me just read you from the story. Just bear with me. It's a lengthy quote, but it's... It might be useful to some of you. Ivan says to his brother, Alyosha, who has great faith, he says, I understand, of course, what an upheaval of the universe it will be in the last day when everything in heaven and earth blends in one hymn of praise in everything that lives and has ever lived, cries out, You are just, O God, for your ways are revealed at last. But, I don't want to be one of the ones that cry aloud then in praise, because it's not worth the tears of that one tortured child who beat herself on the breast with her dear little fist and prayed in that stinking outhouse with unexpiated tears to her dear, kind God. It's not worth it, because those tears are unatoned for. Yeah, they must be unatoned for on that cross, but are you going to atone for them? Are they really avenged even there? What good does it do then? And what do I care for a hell for oppressors who act unjustly? What good can hell do since the children have already been tortured? It shouldn't have happened at all. This has been used a lot as um, um, people without faith, um, uh, from an agnostic or atheist perspective, um, say... How can a good God allow something like this, even if he redeems it? He let it happen in the first place. It's a very popular way of taking God to court. And what's interesting about Ivan is he's not denying the existence of God. He's just saying, because he let it happen, I refuse to worship him. I just want to say to you, brothers and sisters, as a Christian, that this is a problem. This is something to be wrestled with. It's not the final word. But it's also not something to sweep under the rug or to be ignored. And God who created all things and created us and invites us to worship Him, invites us to worship Him without this resolved at every point. And it's not the final word. But it's a problem to human reason. And though they have more faith than Ivan did, Mary and Martha are sitting there with this problem in their suffering. And I've got to think that some of you are sitting in a similar place. Or have. And if you're not and you haven't, you absolutely, most definitely, certainly will. And Jesus comes to them. Having let their brother die, Jesus comes to them, and first he comes to Martha. First he comes to Martha. And Martha says it first. Mary says the exact same thing later on. What does she say? Verse 21. What you would say. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha, maybe a little stoically, 
maybe steeling herself a bit in the moment, says in verse 24, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus responds, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus wants her to know that He's the resurrection and the life as she suffers. What's the point of this? Here's the point. Do you ever think about the fact that every time Jesus healed anybody, every, t- every time, whether it's the, the son of the widow at Nain in the Gospel of Luke, or Jairus' daughter, who we read about in Matthew and Mark, every time that Jesus heals somebody or raises them from the dead, what happens to that person later? They die. At, at the end of the day, Death is still in their story. You have your sight returned to you in John chapter 9. Great. You'll die though. Your son, widow of name, is raised and returned to you. Great. One day you'll die and then, hopefully after you, he'll die too. At the end of the day, death still has the final word. It's actually not news that's that great in a lasting way. If all Jesus came to do was to heal physical bodies that are still eventually going to die. Right before, um, we we actually looked at this passage as a church um, in the fall. We were doing a series on suffering. So now in the spring when we're, in the winter and spring we're going through the Gospel of John. Um, it, was, it was fun for me to return to it again in the context of the whole gospel. But right when we looked at it before, in the fall, the week that I was going to preach on this text, uh, one of our pastors in the Acts 29 network, which is one of the networks that our churches are uh, in fellowship with, uh, it's called Real Life Church, uh, a pastor named Rob Burns, uh, just a little north of us along the Delaware River in Philadelphia, had a very massive heart attack. And by all accounts, the surgeons and all the doctors and nurses in the room said, he should be dead. That's a miracle. And we spent a long time um, in prayers of thanksgiving that week, trying to mirror our thanks, our, our prayers of thanks, in a way that's reflective of how, how much we'd be praying uh, and interceding beforehand, trying to just, uh, just, just lavish praise on God for raising and saving Rob. But he'll die. He will die someday. Here's what Jesus is saying. Um, Jesus is saying, Martha, if I give your brother back to you now, this is between the lines, just, just bear with me. If I give your brother back to you now, and even if he's raised on the last day, yeah, I know like a good Jew, like a good Israelite, you're awaiting a resurrection that, 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 that's kind of unclear in the Old Testament scriptures, but you all kind of hope that one day um, the people you've lost will be raised and they'll be returned to you. But here's the thing. Unless you realize that every bit of that power comes from me, the Jesus standing right in front of you, you can hold on to your brother. You can hold on to hope. 
But at the end of the day, you will never get him unless you hold on to me. And if you hold on to me, you will get him and every other thing. If you fail to hold on to me, if you fail to really realize who I am, you will get nothing. But if you do hold on to me, you will get him and every other thing. And the new creation, when he makes all things new, when every sad thing becomes untrue, in the great endless day, and you will flourish with me and him forever. I am the resurrection and the life, and you cannot even possibly conceive of any resurrection apart from me. I'm right here. I'm right here. The Christian hope, in a word, resurrection. The gospel, in a word, resurrection. A dead Savior, I want you to know, we we focus a lot on the cross. Rightly so. The place where all of our guilt and sins are atoned for. Everything that you or I have ever done to harm God and harm ourselves and harm others, every way that we fail to live up to His standard, passively or actively, is atoned for, made right, paid for. And yet I want you to know, if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, if He doesn't live to save those who call out to Him in faith, there is no hope. Easter is a better story than Good Friday. Easter's the best story. And it's the only context for Good Friday. We already know that this isn't enough for Ivan Karamazov, who says, yeah, resurrection, get it back, great. What about the problem of evil now? I heard another pastor put it this way, and it's tremendously helpful for me. I do not ever want to open my mouth where God doesn't open his. But here's where he does open his mouth. We don't know why in his divine plan he allowed any suffering at all. He ever allowed a single heart to beat. He ever allowed the sin to enter the world that would bring death, that would plague every human who ever lived. We don't know why, but we do know what he's going to do about it. And what he's going to do about it is resurrection. And That's only half the answer. But isn't it the half that we need? There's this uh, apologist named David Bentley Hart. He went toe-to-toe a hundred years later with uh, Ivan Karamazov and reading back over the story. And in conversation with this literary figure from a hundred years earlier, the very real David Bentley Hart wrote this in response to Ivan Karamazov's objections about God's justice. He says, I don't know why God allowed this in the first place. But I do know this. On the last day, He will raise her up, wipe away every tear from that little girl's eyes, and there will be no more death, or no sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, for the former things have passed away, and He who sits on the throne will say, Behold, I make all things new. And that is written on the grave of my little girl. I think God knew that I, 
I had to be late today to hear you guys singing the words of it. As I walked in during communion, all things new. And Jesus says to her, to Martha, I'm standing right before you. If you hold on to me, you'll get everything else. But don't miss me in the suffering. And he just says to her, Will you believe? That's his question to Martha. Verse 26. Do you believe this? And she says, yes. Will you trust me that this is not the end for you or your brother? And she says, yes. She doesn't get the half of the answer as to why, but she gets the half that she needs is what God will do about it. Mary. Very different woman. Very different sufferer. Martha goes and gets her. Mary, we're not told why, doesn't run out to meet Jesus when she hears that He's come near. She lets Martha go. And the Apostle writer John was there and got all the data, got all the conversation in the, in the conversation between Martha and Jesus and gave it to us. But with Mary, when Mary comes to him, what does she do? She says the same thing that Martha said. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Important detail in verse 32 before she says that. She falls down. Who knows how she even got there in the middle of her mourning? Falls down. Says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And what does Jesus say in response? This is important. Nothing at first. And I want to suggest to you that this is off topic, but I think it's important to say to sufferers, um, in a moment of acute suffering, uh, you can come to somebody with the best theological answer that could be objectively true, and it could be the absolute worst thing to say, and you'll regret it for the rest of your life. Jesus says, Where is he? And then he just goes. I believe he had wisdom to know what Martha needed. And in the moment for Mary, it wasn't theology. It was his tears. Verse 33 is fascinating. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And a lot of theologians have played with that verb that's translated for us in the ESV. Deeply moved in spirit. One commentator, D.A. Carson, actually goes on a pedestal He's a little bit outraged that it's put so gently. In our translation battles over John 11, all theologians and translators and exegetes agree that the phrase used there for deeply moved in spirit is rooted in a word that refers to the angry snort of an animal. Jesus is angry. You read deeply moved in spirit. Read angry, like a bull seeing red. 
and going like that, ready to charge at it. That's what's going on in his spirit. That's not all. It's not the only emotion. You know, we've read since John 1 that this is the Word made flesh. We get that this is the God-man walking around, but nowhere yet has Jesus been so emotional, so human. He's angry and sad. Verse 35, Jesus wept. And we're not sure at what. Um, uh, Different commentators aren't sure. Is he just angry at death? Yeah, maybe. Is he angry at the unbelief of those around him, some of whom there's a conversation going on? Is this guy really able to do anything? Why didn't he come in the first place? We read about that conversation in this chapter. Is he angry about that? Yeah, maybe. Is he just sad and angry about the suffering of his friends? I think it's probably all of the above. What's the point? He's angry and he's grieving and he's suffering with his friends. I've said something like this before, and I, I, I say it a lot at Liberty because I have no idea who you are or where you come from. So it's probably true of about 75% of you. I don't know who got you in this building this morning. I don't know um, how many times since I've been talking that you've wanted to walk out. I don't know um, if you have any faith. But let me just take the fact that not all of you have run out to commend to you why I'm a Christian. I probably should be a Christian because God and His power and authority and might and glory and beauty is worth worshiping and giving my whole self to and following with abandon and leaving everything to follow Him just because He's good and true and beautiful, period. I ought to be a Christian just because of that. But the reason I converted... And the reason I make it the goal of my life imperfectly, the reason why it is the goal of my life to take up a cross and follow Jesus insofar as he enables me by his spirit, hopefully more and more, is not because, solely because, God is good and true and beautiful. I'm a Christian, and in some way, anybody else who's a Christian in this room is a Christian because God bleeds and grieves and weeps. And if he doesn't, we don't have a faith. And we don't have a salvation. And this is a great, beautiful part of our salvation. That Jesus, truly, in this poignant moment, foreshadowing his own death, is showing how much he knows exactly what it's like to be anxious and to be upset and to have deep sorrow and to have people he loves gone even as he's about to raise them from the dead. And he hates, hates, hates what sin that led to death has done to the good creation because he was around when it got made. This moment is, as I said, foreshadowing Jesus' own death. Did you see that Lazarus is in a cave and there's a stone and it's got to be rolled away in a few chapters in no uncertain terms, we're going to see how this is a, a picture of Jesus walking as the man of tears and the man of sorrows towards his friend's tomb as a foreshadowing of walking towards his own cross. Let me end like this, brothers and sisters. 
as you struggle with the problem of evil and suffering and death in God's good world, His good but broken world. This is why I'm a Christian, and this is what the Christian faith would commend to you. That the best thing that ever happened to the world was also the costliest, most tragically painful event the world has known. The death and resurrection of the Son of God, which leads to resurrection life for all who look to Him in faith. Here's one thing this means for Ivan Karamazov, and you and me. If you're offended, if you're scandalized by this, if you know intimately or by reading the news the deep suffering that you and I can sometimes avert our eyes from, but eventually won't be able to, if you're as scandalized and offended as Ivan Karamazov was by the pain and death in the world, God, in all integrity, could look at you in all your rage over what God lets happen in the world. He could look right back at you and say, don't you talk to me about suffering because he's suffered worse. And he's done it for you and for the life of the world. Instead, he just... Well, he does a lot. I'm going to leave you with two things that he does for you. He says, will you believe that I did that for you? Will you believe that in me, one day, everything sad will become untrue? It will all be put distantly behind us. He invites you to believe in the half of the story that's commended to you now, that death will end and the ones we've lost will be returned to us in faith. Those who are in Him. And then the other thing He does, as you wait for that great endless day, as you wait for the renewal of all things, the new heavens and the new earth, He will weep with you. He will grieve with you as you wait. Until the day, there will be no tears left. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let me pray for us. Almighty, everlasting Father, we come to you as people who are sad, as people who do grieve, as people who are scarred and scar others, as people who, apart from the resurrection, who is Jesus. Apart from the resurrection, we are lost and without hope in the world, looking forward, if we pay any attention at all, only to our own death and the death of all those who we love. And in that hopelessness, in that raging hopelessness, we are not passively hopeless. We are angry and actively sin against you, and run away from you, you come. Suffer with us. Suffer for us. And say, in love, will you believe? Will you join me in the resurrection? Will you let my resurrection count for yours? Will you let my resurrection lead to yours one day? And to the people who have scorned and rejected you, it is a miracle 
straight from heaven that anyone says, like Martha, yes. And Father, in your mercy, help us to say yes again today. Help those who have never said yes to say yes to Jesus. And thank you for weeping and grieving with us as we wait that great for that great inheritance. Hear our prayer, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.